2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're nearing the end of Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. So we've worked through this this summer. And here's we come to verse 13 and 14 and 15 of chapter 3. Paul is dealing with a final problem that this church is facing. Paul has established the church in this city, this Roman city. He's been chased off by an angry mob. He's written them back once a few weeks later. He heard a good report. Now he's writing back again several months later, addressing a few problems that have arisen. There's still persecution. That's chapter one. What do we do when people are really making our lives difficult? There's false teaching. Someone is saying the day of the Lord has come, and it's really rattled all of them. And Paul is setting the record straight. But then finally, there's someone here, and this has kind of been a persistent problem throughout all of this history that Paul has with this church. There's someone who's not working. They're not keeping a job. They're, they're loafing off of other people. They're being idle, and it's getting them into all sorts of trouble. They're bringing disorder into the church. And Paul is addressing this church to tell them how to deal with it. When you hear the word discipline, what comes to your mind? Do you think, yes, okay, I need to be more disciplined this semester at school. I need to get up when my alarm rings. I need to remember to make my coffee before I go to bed so that it's ready for me so I'm not late to class. I need to write my assignments in my planner so I don't miss any homework. I need to be more disciplined. That's you. Welcome to refreshman year, maybe your sophomore year. Self-discipline, maybe that's what you think of. Maybe maybe think in terms of, yes, that is definitely what my children need. They need more discipline. I need to discipline them more lovingly, more consistently. That's what I'm trying to give my kids. I see some small heads shaking their heads. No, no, not more discipline. That's the calling of parenting, disciplining children to teach them what's right and what's wrong and to correct them and to drive foolishness from them. There's foolishness bound up in the heart of a child, the Bible says, and the rod of correction drives it far from him. It's not the only form of discipline, but that is a form of discipline. Or maybe your mind doesn't go there at all. Maybe you think about the different disciplines that you work with at work. So you you hold a job where you're dealing with a lot of uh, interdisciplinary situations, folks of various medical disciplines or teaching disciplines or trade disciplines. We call these things disciplines because if you're, if you say it this way, if you're a disciple of that way of thinking or studying, you have to learn all the rules and the requirements of what it means to do that job effectively. There are guidelines inside of which you really do have great freedom. Sometimes we think of Discipline is really restrictive, but if you don't have discipline, you can't have freedom. You must have discipline before you can uh, uh, innovate. Did you ever take piano lessons? Why do I have to learn my scales? I even asked that as a college student. Why do I have to play all of these etudes? But if you don't have the discipline of how to do the basics, you can't ever have freedom to go beyond that. If you're outside of the discipline of the discipline, you're never going to make progress. You have to go undergo 
discipline to learn what you need to be proficient at your work. And, and I even made this connection. You hear the, the, the similarity between being a disciple and having discipline. There's long been a distinction made between two types of discipline the Bible addresses. We're talking about church discipline, not child discipline, self-discipline. This is what the Bible calls or what we really have called church discipline. And there's a distinction that's made between formative discipline and corrective discipline. So when you belong to a church and you're being taught and you're being shown the precepts of God and you're being raised up as a disciple and you're being edified, this is forming you. It's trying to teach you the discipline of what it means to be a disciple. It includes teaching and guiding and educating. Like when Jesus said, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What do they teach disciples? They teach the disciples the commands of Jesus. This is forming people as disciples. We all need that when we come to Christ. All the time, really, we need this. But there's also corrective discipline, which includes, of course, correction and encouragement and rebuke. We sometimes need our way of thinking not just shaped, but changed from a wrong way of thinking and living. And requires some kind of intervention. This is most often what we think about when we hear the term church discipline. We think about corrective discipline, a corrective process. Church discipline does include both, and it should. It has to include both. So that's often the association we have. I think it's helpful to draw attention to the fact that these aspects of discipline, the formative aspect and the, the corrective aspect, these are very closely tied to the functions of Scripture in our lives. If you think about uh, the verse 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, or instruction in righteousness. One person put it this way. The Bible shows you what's right, doctrine. The Bible shows you what's wrong, reproof. Uh, reproof, yes, what's wrong in your life. The Bible shows you how to get it right. That's correction. It corrects you from wrong to right. And then it shows you how to stay right. This is instruction in righteousness. And you see how the first one and the fourth one really have to do with formative discipline. Doctrine is what's true. And instruction in righteousness is how to stay on the right path. This is forming you and forming your thinking and your life. But scripture also gives us reproof and correction. It shows us what's wrong. It shows us how to get right. God gave us his word, you could say, to discipline us. God disciplines us by his word. He disciplines us according to his word. So this evening, I'd like to take up kind of the topic of church discipline, but especially as it comes to these verses in this letter to the Thessalonians. And it does really cover quite a range of what is involved in church discipline. Maybe as you think of this topic of church discipline, you think of Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 or Galatians 6 and it's helpful if we were if we had time to go to all of those passages to see everything that the Bible says about church discipline. But here in this passage, there's in just a few verses quite a scope that we have 
to see how church discipline works. A healthy church, especially a healthy local church, that's what we're talking about, disciplines itself to lead everyone in it to obey Christ's will. Paul is writing, giving them instructions, but Paul is not coming and doing it himself. He's telling them, you need to do this. You need to discipline yourself to bring everyone in the church into obedience and conformity with Christ's will. This is God governing his church. This is God giving the church itself responsibility to govern itself. How does church discipline bring members to follow Christ's will? Well, I think there are just five elements that kind of arise from these verses here. We'll start reading in verse six to catch the problem, but our text for this evening will start in verse 13. Second Thessalonians three, verse six, Paul writes, now we command you brethren in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition, which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want you to see first in verse 13 that this disorder that is being brought into the church by someone who is loafing off of other people and who refuses to work after repeated instruction to do so, you see first that church discipline has to do with the health of the church. Paul draws attention to a problem in verse 13. He commands the unruly to obey, but then in verse 13, he, he turns to the rest who are obeying. What does he say to them? As for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. The problem with ongoing disobedience is obviously that it's sin, sin before God, but there's more than just that. It's causing those who are doing good perhaps to grow weary. But if you think back, it really has started way before this. We, uh, If you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul had already addressed this in his first letter, not long after he had left. He kind of hinted at it, hoping that they would take a hint and remember what he had taught them. He's writing to them about loving each other. 
Make it your ambition, verse 11, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. When he was there, he had been teaching them this. So that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So first, this is a matter of loving each other. You need to do this so you're in a right relationship to each other. But you also need to be doing this so you're behaving properly toward outsiders. There's the issue of testimony here. Correct the wayward for the sake of the Lord. Because if they're disorderly and they're really bringing disrepute on the church from the world, they're testifying something very nasty and very really not true about God, that God is a God of disorder or a God of laziness. No, God created work. So correct those who are wayward in this way for the sake of the Lord, the issue of the church's testimony. But you also get a sense back in 2 Thessalonians 3 that you need to correct the wayward for the sake of the wayward himself. There's the, the, the potential for hardness of heart. Paul commands in verse 6 of chapter 3, brother, in the name of our Lord Jesus, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the, to, to the tradition which you receive from us. These so-called brothers were walking in a path of sin, and that's dangerous for them, Paul says. And the New Testament really highlights the function of the church this way. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be hardened in your sin. Don't play with sin. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. But we really need to gather so we can stir one another to love and good works. We, we, we really need this every week. If you think of, if you've ever made a, a grill on a charcoal grill, right? You need to arrange those charcoal bricks next to each other. And you need to, if you, if you use lighter fluid, if you're, uh, not, if you're less than a master of charcoal grilling, you need to give it a lot of air. And then you need to keep those bricks close to each other don't you? Because once it gets separated off, that one's going to lose its heat. And this is what happens to us when we forsake the assembling of ourselves together. No one is an exception here. We cool off. We tend towards being hardened in our sin. We need each other. And Paul is saying, correct the wayward for the wayward person's sake lest he be hardened in sin. But then in verse 13, there's the issue of infection. Correct the wayward for the sake of the obedient. It is really developed to a point where it's very public and it's causing a nuisance in the church, not just a nuisance. It's bringing disorder that's dishonoring to Christ. And what's the potential here? Grow weary of doing good? Why would someone who's not working and trying to live off those who are, why would that cause them to grow weary of doing good. Paul writes, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin has this effect. But if you think about it, there's the possibility of the spread of sin, especially among the young and the immature believers of the church. If they see this going on and it's not being addressed, well, you know, I sure would like not to go to work. Maybe I'm going to do this. And someone who's 
not really doesn't have a lot of discernment may start to follow them because they see their sin is not being corrected and sin starts to spread. There might be the possibility of cynicism on the part of those who are working and are trying to do good when a need actually does arise, a genuine need. Ugh, someone's trying to loaf off me again. You just need to figure it out yourself. Paul's saying, no, no, there's a real need. You need to love each other. You need to meet the needs. Don't grow weary of doing good. You need to stop enabling the one who's not doing good. Of course, there's the possibility of discouragement at someone who will not change his ways. It takes time. It takes effort to see someone corrected. And it can be disheartening when things move slowly. It really all adds up to this possibility that one seemingly minor issue of disorder could really have a big damaging effect on the church. The solution that Paul is encouraging them toward is don't give up obeying Christ. Don't give up doing the right things. They needed encouragement. Paul gives that here. But you see how church discipline has to do with the health of the church, the health of the church's testimony, the health of the individual who's in sin, the health of the others who are trying to bear with this person, who may be affected by this person. Don't grow weary in doing good. But it's more than just health. Paul gives a condition in verse 14. If, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, note that person and disassociate with them. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Church discipline, second, is a protection from sin. The issue here is knowing disobedience to God's word. When we think about not working, maybe you find yourself asking, what's the big deal? The big deal is that God created us to work. Paul taught them while he was there that they should work. He warned them against not working. When he left, he wrote a letter and told them that they ought to work with their own hands. Now he's writing several months later, and this person is still not working. It's not just no big deal. This is a settled way of operating, refusal to turn from disorderly living. It's sin, and it's knowing sin. If this continues, Paul says, the next step of church discipline should occur. This person has really shown disregard for the words of the apostle and the words of God, and that really should never describe God's people, should it? God's people should be sensitive to the word of God. They should be tender. At, at the first sign of God's displeasure, they, they should want to turn away from this. We of all people, we call ourselves Christians. We should care about the words of God and be sensitive to them. But the reason is a, a loving restraint from persistent sin. This person is continuing in a path of sin and they need their attention arrested. They're not getting any of the hints. They're not taking all the instruction. They need somebody to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, hey, buddy, pay attention. Look at where you're going. You're going to ruin yourself. And this isn't just to act like we're better than somebody else. This is to show someone their sin and as a group to call them to repentance. Church discipline is a protection from sin. Do you ever need pulled back from sin? 
It can happen to any of us. We all have a sinful flesh. So what do we do about that? Well, repent of sin when God is working in your heart. Really what we're, what, what the ideal here is that when God's word is preached and you're sitting under the preaching of God's word, which in God's will you should be, that's what's healthy for you. Receive with humility. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Not, not with pride, not objecting to it, but as the word is taught and applied, being tender to it. We don't act like we're better than others. We pay attention to ourselves. So don't delay if God's working in your heart. Don't make excuses. If there are challenges to dealing with your sin, seek counsel about that. It's not always simple. Sometimes it is hard, but don't sit in your sin. But how does church discipline protect from sin? Well, note the command here. If this person doesn't obey, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. Or take special note of that person not to associate with him. These are really much more connected than they might first appear. The command is to mark the person who won't repent. Distinguish the person for yourselves. It's in the plural. It's to the whole group, meaning everybody needs to be aware of who this is who won't obey. Everybody needs to participate in this together, and everyone needs to be agreed about this. Mark that person out for yourself. Everyone in the church needs to know that this is a marked man, you could say. But marked for what? The purpose for marking this person is, as Paul says, to withhold fellowship. The word here, do not associate, is don't mix it up with this person. Don't be refreshed with this person. Don't associate with this person as though nothing is wrong. You can't have true biblical Christian fellowship with this person any longer. Mark him not to fellowship with him. This probably means make sure that person doesn't take the Lord's table. They need specifically told, you are not in communion with this church. It probably means don't let them participate in any family meals that they're having together as a church because that would enable them further to loaf off of others. Paul doesn't really specify here, but don't have fellowship with them. What what is this? Is this just meanness? No, of course it's not meanness. Paul actually uses the exact same word in 1 Corinthians 5. Do not associate with this person in a context when he's very clearly saying, remove this person. Remove them from the membership of the church. As it works at our church, when you become a member of the church, you agree to a covenant. You covenant before God and before the rest of the members of the church to uphold certain obligations. And if you're breaking your covenant, you're doing something that is very unlike God. Any covenant that we break, God never breaks a covenant. But when someone does this, they need to realize that they've done it. And it needs to be very clear. This is God's testimony against them. Paul very clearly means in that context of 1 Corinthians 5, remove that person. If you've welcomed someone in and made oaths to them under the obligations of the covenant, and they have broken the covenant, they need to realize it and be removed from that 
church. They have removed themselves from communion with the church. But they also need to be removed formally from the privileges and the responsibilities of the church. This is often what we would call excommunication. And this is given all sorts of names. Maybe you've heard, man, he got churched. Have you ever heard that? He got churched. It's it's really slandered. It's looked at very with with real negative connotations. Why would God require something like this? Is is this mean? No, it's not mean. It actually would be unloving to let that person stay like nothing was the matter. When it really is, something really is wrong. It's actually loving to show someone that he's on the course to hell. If you had a doctor who discovered cancer in your body and didn't tell you, what would you think of that doctor? You would never go back to him. You'd probably seek to make sure he didn't see anyone else, right? That's a terrible doctor. If you see a pattern in someone's life that's a cancer that's sending them to hell and they're never addressed about it, this is a terribly unloving thing to do. They're deceived. It really is a loving thing to show them their sin and their need to repent because God is a forgiving God. Maybe you'd say, well, if he's a Christian, how could you say he's on the highway to hell? Well, because he's certainly acting like it. When you do not repent of sin, you are acting like an unbeliever. That's really the one of the most characteristic things of those who are not in Christ is when they're insensitive to their sin. So the problem is the health of the church and the danger is sin. And the command really is heightening the accountability for these people. But next, you see here in the next aspect of church discipline, how church discipline really takes shape. Church discipline maintains the God-given goal of restoration. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him because you hate him and you never want to see him again. Is that what it says? No. So that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The goal of this pressure, and it is, it's raising the accountability. The goal of this pressure is to bring shame for sin. Sin is shameful. Don't associate with him because so that he is ashamed, so that he is ashamed. Something needs changed. Something needs broken off. Being put out is a shameful thing. And it's designed to get the attention of someone who is really continuing in a path of sin, maybe maybe hardened in their sin. But the goal of shame isn't just shame for its own sake, but to bring repentance of sin. Paul's speaking here in the, in the hypothetical. It's a desired outcome for something. If this were to continue, this is what you should do in the hope that he would be ashamed and turn from his sin. John Calvin describes it this way. People who indulge in their sins become more and more set in their evil ways. Therefore, the best remedy is when a feeling of shame is aroused in the heart of the offender so that he begins to be displeased with himself. It would be only a limited victory to shame individuals, though. 
Paul had something more in mind. He wanted the offender to make progress. He desired the guilty one to see his own evil ways and so be led into a purer way of living. Let's just be right up front about this. If someone is having to be shamed to be turned from sin, they're not in a good spot. Things are not going well. You could say this is a last-ditch effort. When you're fixing your car and you're trying to use the right tool and it just won't work and maybe it's a ratchet and it keeps slipping and things are stripped and, and you try to get your pliers and you're cranking on it and this and this and it's just not working, you can't get it. And then finally you have to cut it off. That's not good. That's not good for your car to have a sheared off bolt, right? Things are not in a good spot for this person if it's coming to this. This is not a desirable way of operating, but it's better than them continuing in their sin. Nothing about church discipline is vengeful. It's for the good of the sinner. It's God's way to pursue his sheep. If you read the chapter, Matthew 18, and see all the imagery of God's shepherding. I heard someone preach a series of message messages from that chapter, chapter called The Shepherd's Reach. How does God pursue his sheep? Sometimes it's through individual discipline. Sometimes it's through circumstances. Sometimes it's just as you're sensitive to the word and he's disciplining you like, like a, a one who is following willingly. But sometimes it's as he sends his people after you. He loves you. The assumption here really is that you are your brother's keeper. Isn't that what Cain said when God asked him, where is your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? Why am I responsible for him? The answer in the church really is, yes, you are. God loves that one. And God gave that one to you to love. So you love that person. Love them so much that you do not want to see them continue in sin. We're accountable to each other. But then finally, Paul turns to the manner in which we ought to do this. Yet, not regarding him as an enemy, but be admonishing him as a brother. Church discipline requires tremendous patience and love and wisdom. There are ways of thinking to avoid, and there are ways of thinking to embrace. Don't consider him to be your opponent. Although he's living like an unbeliever, He's refusing to obey Christ. Don't become hostile towards him. Admonish, keep admonishing him. It's a command as a brother, as though he is your brother. This is a way of thinking that we ought to adopt in this process and, and the posture you take towards this person. Paul said back in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's almost as if he had this in the back of his mind. First Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. It's the same word, and he's talking about the same group of people. Admonish, be admonishing them, showing them what's wrong, teaching them what's right, helping them be disciplined, admonish the unruly, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Jude writes in his letter of a way of thinking about those who are in sin. Jude verse 22, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Sometimes we are in the business as a church of going after someone and pulling them back from the fire, and that's for their good. What is the worst thing in the world that could happen to a person? It's that they die in their sins and face eternal hellfire. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of your good pleasure, of his good pleasure. And one of the things, one of the ways to work out your salvation is to make sure you see the fruit of repentance in your life. That's really what this whole process is designed to do. But it takes patience, it takes love, it takes wisdom, because these are real people. These, they've probably got family in the church, they've probably got connections, business partners in the church. And people need to think right in the process. Don't be harsh, don't be proud, don't be impatient, be loving, be persistent, be truthful. So are you someone who receives instruction? Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This person, this group of people, whoever they are, they've despised a lot of instruction, haven't they? They're they're showing themselves to be foolish. They need corrected. And sometimes, don't we, when we think about it, some of us are, our tender little lambs. I heard someone say on the way in when they were corrected, oh, I'm sorry, mom. You know, some of us were like that. I have a nephew who's like that. Oh, I'm sorry, mommy. You're so right. Was that you as a kid when you got corrected? Nope. Some of us really need you obey. And that's what this person needed. Proverbs 9, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Are you a wise man? Do you love reproof? I had someone tell me this week, thank you for telling me that. I needed convicted of that sin. My first thought was, this is a wise person. He's not proud. He doesn't think he's beyond sinning. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. Be humble to receive instruction. That's my, my plea to you. My heart for you is that we would never get here. There's formative discipline. There's corrective discipline. We need both. But may the Lord work in our hearts as we're tender towards him, as we're turning from sin. He's given us his spirit to convict us of sin. Don't quench the spirit. God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. That really is the truth that lies behind all of this. Proverbs 7, Hebrews 12, 
Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, this is from Proverbs 7, do not regard lightly or do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Why not? I don't like discipline. I don't want more discipline. What does the author of Hebrews say? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So if you see God's discipline in your life, you can rejoice about that. The Bible tells you it's not pleasant. It's not. But what comes into your mind when you think about discipline? Is it, my father loves me. Maybe not when you're a little child. I did not. I dare say that none of us did. But when you get older and you realize, my father disciplined me for my good, to teach me his values, to set me in the way that I should go. I respect him and I love him. He did that against all of his desires. He didn't love, he didn't enjoy to do that. He would much rather that I had come out of the womb obeying every word that he said, imbued with all of his values, but he loved me and he persisted with me. How much more your heavenly father, who doesn't leave you without discipline, but sends people after you, gives you people who you know nothing about, who you may have nothing in common with, who love you and want you to see walking with God. Praise the Lord, because this is wisdom, isn't it? This is the wisdom of God. This is the glory of God to discipline us for our good. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a serious topic, and it's maybe uncomfortable for us to think about. Well, Lord, we know that your discipline is a sign of your love, but it is necessary because of our sin. Help us to turn from sin if we're your people. Help us to be sensitive to your leading. Lord, there, there are just layers and layers and layers of sin that just as you open our eyes to them, it's just like you peel back another layer and we realize more ways that we've done wrong or we haven't done right. We've committed sins or omitted things that we should do. And Lord, there's, it never seems to be an end of this and it can be discouraging. But Lord, even that is you uh, leading us away from sin and leading us to holiness. Give us that kind of tenderness that says with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, what, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not just that looks at our sin and gets weighed down and discouraged by that, but looks to Christ and says, forgive me, lead me in the path of righteousness. Help me to put on Christ like this. Lord, give us sensitive, tender, 
humble hearts to heed your word and heed your instruction. Because Lord, you do show us what's right. You show us what's wrong. You tell us how to get right. And you always have the answer. And you help us and you show us how to stay right. Help us to stay right with you, even this week. Help us to walk with you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.